Hi, this is Aaron Azrod. Welcome to the 16th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Today, we return back to our chronology to discuss the crisis of the third century, which many consider to be the beginning of the end of Rome. Brett, there's nothing worse in this world than a slow death, huh? Yeah, I would say you're right, Aaron. And if anyone is guilty of suffering a slow death, that's certainly the Romans. Um, <laughs> They have a, a very slow decline. Although, honestly, for the people living in Rome, probably you'd prefer a slow decline to a rapid one, as rapid ones are usually precipitated by war and killing, right? Not that there wasn't plenty of that in Rome either. Yes, so Rome has, in our previous episodes, we've discussed what is known by Roman historians as the Pax Romana, the golden age of Rome. And unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. And we are there. Uh, we are at the end of the golden age of Rome, uh, leading into what is known as the crisis of the third century. Now, the crisis starts arguably with Commodus, with Commodus's death. Commodus is a very bad emperor. Uh, we discussed him earlier. He's really not interested in ruling. He's not really interested in anything beyond his own hedonistic, uh, you know, divulging his hedonistic impulses. When he dies, when he's assassinated, the, the empire uh, once again is up for grabs. And it goes through a couple of not really notable emperor's hands until it ends up in the hands of a general named Septimius Severus. Severus is kind of the first general slash emperor to realize that he's not ruling by any virtue other than by his his might makes right. He's like one of the first ones to kind of like almost outwardly admit that the power of the empire comes from the army. And as such, he is bribing and raising the pay of the already highly bribed and highly paid Roman military. His son, Caracalla, takes, takes these notes to heart. These, this idea that it does not matter what the Senate thinks of you. It does not matter what the people think of you. All that matters is what the army thinks of you. And he goes even further with the bribing, even further with the promotions. The, the military is becoming incredibly bloated, incredibly lazy, incredibly undisciplined, to the point where all they care about is where their paychecks are coming from and is the guy that says they're in charge paying them enough, right? So any, any semblance of a meritocracy has now just completely left Rome. Completely gone. It's all about, well, the military. It's all about the military. On top of that, as we kind of alluded to in some earlier episodes, there are a bunch of bad natural disasters occurring in Rome around this time. The one that we covered the most carefully was um, a plague that hits Rome, brought on from a war in the East, like Eastern meddling causes the soldiers to bring this back. They bring back this plague. Uh, I think it's COVID-16. No, it's not. I'm, <laughs> I'm just messing with you. It's the Antonine Plague. It, it, it comes from, from the Middle East, and it spreads through Rome very quickly via the, uh, the soldiers. Remember, 
that this hap- this comes up a couple of times in Rome's history. Rome's greatest strength is also one of its greatest weaknesses, which is Rome has incredibly good infrastructure. I would, editorializing here, I would say the best in the ancient world. The, the feats of of like of of infrastructure that they're able to accomplish in terms of building roads and building bridges roman architecture and engineering is the best in the world the romans are not well known for their poetry and they're not well known for their art and they're not well known for their their religion i mean they are now but they stole it from the greeks let's be honest but what they are well known for besides war is their engineering they have some of the best engineers in the ancient world. They build good bridges. They build good roads. They build fast ships. They are excellent at paving. And it sounds mundane, I know. Like, who cares? But it's really important when you have an empire that spans such a large space of land to be able to keep it connected. And that's how you keep it connected. And so later on, we're going to see that their infrastructure becomes a source of weakness for them when the barbarians are able to use Roman roads to move troops and move supplies really fast back and forth down uh, the Roman coast. And it also is a problem during the plague because of how fast sick people can get around the country. So it's kind of ironic that the very thing that allowed Rome to have this this vast influx of trade is now the thing that's bringing disease into the empire like there's no tomorrow. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the weaknesses of globalism is that the world becomes connected, which means that a problem one place is a problem in all places. Let's say uh, 100 years ago, if China was having a famine, uh, probably you we wouldn't feel it so bad in the United States. We would know about it and we would hopefully we'd be moved by the plight and we would try to help, but it wouldn't like really cripple our economy. But today, if China's having problems, America's having problems. If India's in trouble, America's in trouble. It's it's the the, the state of things in a global economy and Rome was nothing if not a global economy. So I guess that's like one of the downsides of, of being like a vast empire is that there's just so much more variables that are out of your control. Oh yeah. Can, can... And it, it's you're, I mean like you're to, to reach these levels of profit and success and work output to like reach these levels, you're like min maxing really hard. Um, the, you're you're not as sturdy and redundant as you could be because every resource is being used to the maximum of its ability. It's like, imagine a, a, a Jenga house. Are you familiar with the game Jenga? Oh yeah, you you pull like one piece out, and then if it's the wrong piece, every the whole the whole tower collapses. Right. So the purpose of the game is to players take turn removing pieces. And then the player that removes the piece that causes the, the, the tower to fall loses the game. Imagine if we were using Jenga blocks to build a tower, and the purpose was to build the tower as tall as possible. Playing it safe, we could have many, many blocks on the bottom, and then a few less on the middle, and then a few less on the top, and make an almost pyramid-shaped tower that would be a very sturdy tower difficult to knock over but it wouldn't be particularly tall because we used 
one might say wasted, so many of our blocks on the bottom to increase stability. We could, on the other hand, stack each one lengthwise on top of each other to make a, an absurdly tall tower with the side effect being that each piece individually is incredibly important and damaging even one piece could cause the whole tower to fall. And that's yeah. kind of what is going on with this, this Roman economy, right? Is lots of dependencies, lots of, of, of fragile systems that if one piece is missing, the whole tower is gonna collapse. And there's ways, there's ways to avoid this in a globalist economy, but uh, it, is, it is always a built-in disadvantage. Absolutely, I, I think that, I like, the, I like the metaphor that you use, like fragile pieces, because as you become more interconnected, as, as you have all of these variables, all of these, like, like one road goes down and it's like, okay, we can't get these resources from here to match up with these resources from over yep. there. Well, now all of production has just come to a grinding I mean, it's point. also like, like we have today, where it's like, uh, if, if there was a problem with our supply line of, let's say, uh, if no, if all the other countries decide they're done making cars, the U.S. economy is probably going to collapse overnight. Because even though we make some cars, we built up our infrastructure on the assumption that we're going to be getting cars from multiple places, right? Yeah, it could even be just we don't have rubber anymore or right. some kind of natural resources that is needed to make cars right. and we're done. Right. For. And, and there's, there's trade-offs because there are people who say like, Oh, uh, this is why America needs to make its own stuff. But the fact is, is that we don't make rubber as good as these other countries. And if we were to just switch back and be like, everything must be made in the USA, the standard of living would go way down because we're not capable of maintaining the production levels that we could have maintained if we use a globalist approach and let the people who are best at doing things do things. The plague, because of that infrastructure, is spreading fast throughout the empire. It's crippling the empire. Mm. I mean, like someone in, in like, let's say like Carthage with the plague could carry it to like Syria in like two weeks if the winds are right, that's fast. That's like modern day Amazon Prime fast. That is not nothing. And, and that, that speed becomes a liability when what you're carrying is not red slip pottery, but a virus. What's the mortality rate on this uh, virus? I mean, it's hard to get exact numbers from something like this, given how long ago this was. And Let's just say methodology wasn't as rigorous as it is today, but the the rough estimate would be like fifty per or fifteen percent of the popul of the Roman population was dead. We're talking like probably a couple of million. Let's say four million on the low estimate and like fifteen million on the high estimate. Okay, so far worse than something like COVID, but not as bad as like a black plague. It's not as bad as the Black Plague. Okay. Um, it is pretty bad. It's they thought it's either it's either the measles or possibly some kind of variant of smallpox. Uh huh. Is the theory on what it is, but we're not hundred percent sure based on the symptoms and where it, and where it came from. It's probably that, uh, but it's not it's not bubonic. It's not it's not the bubonic plague for sure. So the, so the plague is ravaging 
ravaging the country, ravaging the, the empire. Um, the people are, are struggling to meet quotas. Supply line or supplies are running short because there just aren't enough warm bodies to, to do everything. On top of that natural disaster, you also have, or probably because of that, you're having lots of, of famines going on during this time. There's there's another there's another plague in in Egypt. Something like sixty percent of the population of Alexandria uh, is dead from plague during this era. That's a huge number. Imagine if sixty percent of the population of New York died in like a decade. That's not a small. That's nothing to like shake your head at. You know what I mean? This caused you know a huge de- uh, decrease in um, farming in in agricultural productivity. This caused a decrease in artisans uh, and it caused a decrease in the military. That decrease in the military precipitated a decrease in uh, protection on the borders, right? So during this era, we're seeing lots of, of barbarian invasions, a lot more than before. This is a combination of the Romans not being able to defend themselves because so many of their, they're dealing with their own problems with the plague. And it comes from a long string of bad emperors who are disinterested in defending the border. Remember how we discussed in a previous episode how Rome kind of plays the role of CIA a lot, destabilizing these these Germanic nations to keep them weak, right? Rome, like, randomly supports... Uh, you know, various sides to keep them fighting amongst each other. They restrict trade. They they encourage infighting. They are waging like like a, an ancient psyops campaign to keep their enemies weak and and bickering. And when they stop doing that, because you have emperors like Caracalla, like Severus, Commodus who don't care about that, that gives these Germanic tribes opportunity to realize, hey, we probably have more in common than not. Let's join forces. Let's build up. And suddenly the barbarian tribes are starting to turn into the barbarian horde. Right. And if I remember correctly as well, the border was really a place where Rome would uh, levy its taxes for all goods coming in. So I imagine if those borders are now no longer supported, they, they're not as efficient in collecting those taxes that are coming in and out of the country. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. So the Germanic tribes along the Rhine and the Danube, one of the ways that they make money is by raiding Roman towns. So they're always kind of on the look lookout for like Roman defenses. And they see you know, like maybe they're noticing that like, like home alone, like, you know, like the lights are on, but maybe nobody's home. Right. And they're getting a little bit more brave. They're getting a little bit more um, daring with their, their raids. And when they're seeing that they're not being punished as harshly, well, they start going ham. Right. So the, the mice will play when the cat's away. That's exactly right. But <laughs> I want to, I want to make clear that more than just Rome, not paying attention. So they're going at it. They've been allowed by lack of interference to to grow finally, and they are they are growing. Rome is losing its grip on on its its region of the world. Rome is becoming more. Le- Rome is becoming less of the controlling force. I mean, it's still the controlling force, but less so as these Germanic tribes unify. Their technology is increasing. 
I, I think you just answered my question, but so now that Rome is weakened, I, I guess this is an opportunity for these Germanic tribes to talk to one another and be like, hey, um, our enemy is right over there. It's not us. It's it's right over there. It's it's this giant place called Rome. And they're they're starting to figure that out, I imagine. Yeah, it's not like Rome had them tricked per se. I, I apologize if I made it come off that way. It's it's more like decide they would be like, let's invade Rome, and then a strong emperor would like smack them down and pay one of their rivals and be like, Hey, if you attack these guys for us you know, we'll give you preferential treatment and traits. And they're like, well, we don't like these people. Attacking Rome is suicide. Yeah, fine. I, we were going to attack these guys anyway. Let's do it. But now that Rome is a much easier target, these tribes are like, like, I, I'm not going to smack down these guys. I mean, we don't like them, but like Rome is such an easy target. We could do, we could, we should also be attacking Rome. Let's do it. And now shared, shared, um, Shared goals leads to cooperation, which leads to teamwork, which leads to community, right? Okay. That's, that's so how that kind of rises. We got plague. We now have um, dramatic tribes starting to invade. Trade has been stifled. What else is going on? We now? have a problem of, this is, I think this is the most important one. Since the time of Augustus Caesar, when the, the Republic like is generally agreed to have fallen and given way to the Roman Empire. Rome has never liked kings. Ever since the age of the Tarquins, the original Roman kings, Rome has hated kings. But to us, I mean, emperors are kings. But Rome is very careful to never call them kings. Even the term emperor is a modern term. They would not have addressed, like, let's say, Augustus Caesar as like Emperor Caesar. Emperor is a, a, a twist of the, the term in Rome called Imperator, which is like commander, right? It's like the leading commander. Kind of like how in China, the leader of China is not called a king, it's called like the chairman, right? He's like the leader of the party. They would never outright say, this is the, the king, this is the emperor. If things got so bad in the United States that we had that, we would probably not call our leader a king either. We would probably continue to use the term president. Right? Yes, yes. I and mean, we, we, we love terms that just like chief executive officer. We like yep. these terms that make it seem like the person in charge is more of a servant. This has advantages. Specifically, it placates the people more. But it also has disadvantages. And one of those disadvantages is that you're – grasp on power is very tenuous with not lacking an official title being having a shadow government means that people don't buy into your form of government so easily because they didn't agree to it they got tricked into it and that's kind of what's going on with the emperors right in rome is that as far as the people are concerned the senate is in charge but not really the emperor's in charge. The emperor in Rome is like the most important senator, but he's not really the most important senator. The other senators don't really matter at all. You know, he's the only guy that matters. And because of this, there isn't really a clear secession plan for emperors. They always have to kind of like scramble to put the next guy in place. It's always like a risk of, of civil war when one emperor dies. And this is starting with the, with the 
Caracalla like really, really throwing away the the veil of like everyone matters. It's just me who leads them. He's like, nope, it's the military that matters. I'm paying them. If you don't like it, TS, because they're the only ones with weapons and there's nothing you can do about it. Pulling away that veil and making it apparent that those with might makes right makes all of these other generals realize, well, if that's all it takes is just control of the military, I have a military. I'm in charge of troops. Why can't I do this? And suddenly, everyone who wins a battle for Rome starts fancying themselves the next Augustus Caesar. And Rome, worse than famine, worse than German, worse than invasion from outside forces, you cannot survive as a country when you're just rolling from civil war to civil war. Civil wars are awful. They're the worst thing that could happen in a country because they shake the, the um, so actually they're the worst thing that could happen in a country because one, there's no one, there's no victor for you, right? There's no one to plunder at the end of the war to take their resources to replenish your stock. Two, even decisive victories are still horrible losses for your country. You know, it's like any win, you're, every, side, every battle is a lost battle in a civil war, right? And two, and three rather, so yeah, so one, every battle is a lost battle in a civil war. It does not matter if your side wins or the other side wins because you're all the same country. You're always losing, no matter what. Two, there's no one to plunder at the end of the war. It's all your country. So typically, especially in the ancient world, you'd fight a war, and then after you won, you'd strip the other country of resources. You'd make them pay some kind of like uh, reparations for the war, and you'd use those resources to rebolster yourself. Uh, that obviously can't happen in a civil war. There isn't another side to steal from. And then three, the general faith in the government is shaken. Usually the people who are waging the civil war have lost faith in your government and are now fighting against you. And just because you beat them does not mean that they suddenly are buying into your side of things. And you can't, um, you can't like easily subjugate the losers because they're your neighbors. They're your friends. They live next door. They, they, it's much easier when you're waging war with an external country to subjugate that external country because you know where they are, they're in that country, right? Go to their border and go tell them what to do. Go send them to the, the copper mines, the silver mines, right? You can't do that to your, your neighbors in Rome. How would you even know? It's, it's, it's a much harder thing to pick those people out. Yeah, right? and I, I think even a good analogy is that many people fail to realize that when the Civil War ended in the United States, it wasn't just over. There was actually the U.S. went through like a period of 30 to 40 years of reconstruction of where they actually had to rebuild the South and have those like very difficult conversations of like, how are we integrating you back into the Republic? How are we doing this? So it's not just like the actual casualties and loss of property and loss of lives that is so destructive in a civil war. It's also like the several decades that follow of reintegrating the losing side. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good point to talk about. Southern, the, the reconstruction period in American history is is rife with turmoil. It's expensive. It's It's you know, you have like the Jim Crow laws rising out of it and, and 
rebuilding your own infrastructure compared to like, let's say World War II for America. We got bombed in Pearl Harbor, um, which is for the most part, the only kind of damage we suffered locally. And then you, you know, you forced Germany and Japan to pay reparations and you go home, right? America, we and packed we, up and we went home. And we made a lot of money rebuilding Europe, you know, like that was mm-hmm. really good for U.S. industries at that time. Yep. But OK, um, civil war is bad for the infrastructure, bad for the morale of the populace. Anything else on our list of disaster that's going on during this this wonderful third century? I mean, <laughs> I, I guess should, I guess I should mention like the in general, really terrible emperors that are in control right like they are not doing anything useful but they're 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 causing chaos in the cities um they're not like they're not they're not running the country right they're doing a bad job running the country and you can only run on autopilot for so long before things start to go off the rails so you have you have an apathetic government you have a military a runaway military you have a total lack of faith and respect in the uh, the order of things at the top. Uh, you know, people essentially don't believe that the, let's say, the quote election, even though it's not really an election, generally the way Rome would do it uh, as just a very small side side note is they would uh, they would say like the, the the emperor would be picked in the back room. And then they would tell the senators, like, this is the emperor. And then the senators would vote. And they would be like, we vote to confer upon Aaron Azerod the title of princeps, leader of the Northern Legions, leader of the Southern Legions, leader of the cart, leader of, you know, like, controller of the Egyptian provinces, master of the, the, um, the Pontifex, Max, Pontifex Maximus, leader of the basically the Roman spiritual uh, spiritual leader. Uh, fun side note: the modern term pope, that's where it comes from, is the Pontifex Maximus. The modern day pope is the Roman Pontifex Maximus, uninterrupted. So, so think of it like that, right? So it's like you know, we we hereby confer unto you the the title of you know general of all the armies, admiral of all the navies. Also, you're the pope. Also, you own the entire state of of uh, of Egypt, and then you would you would get on and and be like, I humbly accept this 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 responsibility from my fellow senators, and I will do my very best to to uphold Roman supremacy throughout the Mediterranean. That faith in that system is falling apart. So you can't imagine why. Um, and so all these things coming together result in Rome basically falling apart at the seams. All these these causes eventually lead to the climax of the crisis of the third century, which is the fracturing of the Roman state. Rome in the late 200 ADs fractures into three states. You have the provinces of Gaul, Britain, and Hispania, Britain, France, and Spain, which is known as the Gallic Empire. You have the, the, the central Italian Roman Empire, the, the peninsula, we'll call it Rome Classic, right? 
And then you have in the east, you have the Palmyran Empire, the Desert Empire. This happens because basically the Roman government becomes so weak from lack of soldiers because of the plague, lack of soldiers because of civil war, lack of soldiers because the, the, the soldiers are just can't be made to cooperate. Uh, the Rome, central Rome becomes so weak that they literally cannot hold on to their territories anymore. And with the barbarians knocking at the, knocking at the gates, uh, someone needs to protect these provinces from, from raids, needs to protect them from being, being pilfered. And so generals in these regions are stepping up and they are basically taking control of the region to protect their people, especially, especially the Gallic Empire, because they're the ones that are on the border with, um, with the, the Rhine and the Danube frontiers. The Palmyran Empire is flourishing, acting as basically a buffer between the Middle East and, and Rome proper, getting rich off of pass-through trading. And the Rome proper is, is deteriorating at a, a rapid rate. Rome is now split in three, three distinct states, each one with its own kind of government, kind of modeled after Rome, but they're not reporting to anyone. Rome is not collecting taxes anymore because they, you know, they're, they're doing their own thing. This, I mean, I don't know how much more of a disaster you can get than this. Rome is fractured, mm. right? I'm wondering, so I actually have a, a number of questions about this. So when they sort of fracture into these three separate states, I'm wondering how, why is it that historians don't say, did the empire like become smaller? Did it, because you're saying that they no longer are adhering to Roman law. They're no longer paying taxes to the empire. Like, yeah, you I mean, know, why would they? The emperors are not lasting more than like, a year. What are you going to do? You're going to back pay taxes to a guy who literally won't even be around next May. <laughs> so, in other words, like the the Senate, the Emperor, do they still have a function in Rome proper? Like, do they do they still have influence there? They just don't have influence in these other territories. They're trying. Um, yeah, yeah. In there, yes, the emperors and the Senate. Well, the Senate by this point in time, the Senate has no influence whatsoever. Okay. Um, They've been Septimius Severus, Septimius Severus, and um, his his son Caracalla have reduced them to nothing more than like a social club, and that even that's being too harsh because really like Commodus, you know, packing the Senate with with sycophants and people who are too afraid to oppose him on anything, and then before him the emperor before him and before him and before him, it's just this, the Senate has been getting ripped apart for centuries now. It's nothing. So mm -hmm. sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. So the Senate, the Senate has no authority and hasn't had any authority for a while. And it has nothing to do with the crisis of the third century. The emperors do control Italy, but it, the control is so tenuous because I mean, you know, you could tell how tenuous it is. They have control of it for like a year and then they're out. So would it be fair to say that these uh, other territories are just completely out of the empire and the empire has been reduced to just Italy? And even that is pretty fractured within itself. Yeah, I, I would be fair to say that uh, these territories are not being they're not paying taxes to the empire. They are following probably most of the laws of the empire, but not because they want to. 
per se. It's just because it's like if you like, for example, the autonomous zone in Seattle or in Washington, if you remember that, like probably the laws that govern that that region were 80 percent American laws. Right. I think I think a better example of this would probably be the British Commonwealth that we saw in probably the, the latter half of the 20th century, where a lot of these uh, nations in Africa, they sort of like were no longer a part of the British Empire, but maybe a lot of their customs and rituals and, and certain trading privileges continued with Great Britain, even after they were no longer an official colony of the British Empire. So so maybe it's like a relationship with that where they're saving face and being like, all right, you guys are free, but you know, we kind of consider yourself like children of us or little brothers or commonwealths. It's, of- it's not even saving face so much as it is like, why fix what isn't broken? Like if you already have a system for ruling and governing, just keep it, change what you need to change, keep the rest. And they don't change much, to be honest. They just change who's at the top. I'm sure the people in Italy aren't happy that they're not getting that tax revenue coming in. Oh, they're, <laughs> they're very upset that their, their empire has fallen. I, well, I, I guess, I guess we, we, won't, we won't call it a fall, but a severe reduction, right, is probably what's, what the crisis for, for now, yes. Now, you said something very interesting in the beginning of this episode. You said, by all accounts, this, this should, should have absolutely been the end so what what miracle happens here that that saves Rome from from what by all accounts should have been the end? That's the question, isn't it? How do empires, how do countries that are on the downslope fix themselves and write the course? Yeah, you're right. I, I had mentioned at the beginning of this episode that this should, by all accounts, be the end of the Roman Empire. But Rome gets a couple of strong, strong emperors who manage to change the rules a bit such that they're able to one keep rome they're they're they they're able to address individually each of the problems that causes the crisis in the first place um, uh, i see there's there's really clever ways that they do it that they they fix these problems and in fixing it they they metamorphosize rome from what's known as as uh you know early empire to the late roman empire and they do a good enough job that the 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 empire of rome lasts in the west for an additional hundred years which you know some people would say you know rome has been around for like seven eight hundred years at this point um is an extra hundred years really that impressive i would say that it is uh (laughs) and then an additional like thousand years in 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 the east right in the form of what we modern uh historians would call the byzantine empire right absolutely uh brett i think that's a great place to leave off thank you so much and i think we'll continue this episode next week and discuss how exactly rome cleans itself up thank you for being on the show today thanks for having me aaron this concludes the 16th part in our series rome the decline of democracy I'm Aaron Azrod.